The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a tune Just an old second handman He'll buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. The Cold War is over, comrade. <laughs> it is, yes. The wall has fallen, the Kickstarter has ended, and, and all is right with the world. So, uh, you able to retire now, Scott? Yes, capitalism has triumphed. Really? We, <laughs> we, we have... We have gathered uh, quite a lot of money through the Kickstarter, so thank you very much to everyone who backed uh, the Bob War Cthulhu Cold War Kickstarter. Uh, it ended up um, at £42,607, which apparently is about £66,000, $67,000. So, um, yes, that is way over what we, we were looking for in the first place. Uh, we've managed to unlock lots of stretch goals, so yay. Thank when's, you. It, when's it due out? <laughs> Put the I man on the spot, why don't I you? I just want to know so that you know I can be first in the line saying, where's my book? It's, it's due out next year. Um, I'm not entirely sure. That's fine, Scott. It's a Kickstarter. We're not I, counting. I, 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 think, <laughs> I, think we ba- I think we bounced the figure of April, May around, but don't hold me to that. I could be horribly wrong. <laughs> I, I'm interested to know whether I ended up putting the most in for that, uh, for that uh, Kickstarter now. Uh, 220-odd, I think, in the end. Uh, if you can better that, let us know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be very impressed if anyone's paid more than you have. Uh, I just, yeah, I decided to go for an extra limited copy on top of the one that I got with the pledge and a regular copy. So. You can never have too many books. Yeah, damn straight. Well, you can't, man. <laughs> I, when I, I don't mean generally you, I mean you. <laughs> I know we've got a few listeners in Australia, and I was just reading Bill Bryson's book Down Under about his journeys thereof. Uh, and he's talking about jellyfish around Australia. This book is full of descriptions of all the things that can kill you, injure you, and so on. But this one particularly stood out as inspiration for some sort of scene in Call of Cthulhu. Not necessarily from the jellyfish skin, but whether you accept the last sentence of this paragraph as actually being true, or whether he's got a bit of hyperbole in there, I don't know. But this is it. I think most of the wildlife in Australia is designed to kill you in any kind of fashion. So, The young man staggered from the water, covered in livid whip-like strips wherever the jellyfish's tentacles had brushed across him and collapsed in a quivering shock. Soon afterwards, emergency crews arrived, inflated him with morphine and took him away for treatment. And here's the thing. And this is the one I want you to remember. Even unconscious and sedated, he was still screaming. 
Oh, How okay. bad is that? Can that really happen? No. Oh, I, I don't know. Um, I remember hearing horror stories when I was a kid. Uh, one of our neighbours in Hong Kong uh, went out swimming in one of the beaches there and uh, apparently dove under the surface at some stage and managed to rise up right underneath a Portuguese man of war. Ow. And he got stung all over his body and he was hospitalised for quite a long time with that. Do you know what the Australians call them, according to this book? Blueies. That sounds quite friendly, doesn't it? <laughs> There's another great quote about those, but I won't... You know. I, I had a, um, a budgie called Bluey once. Was, was he poisonous? No, he wasn't. He was a poor little budgie that was blue. He sat in a cage. That's what he did. <laughs> oh. Not Australian, though, was he? <laughs> a long, long way from Australia. <laughs> and you're off to Gen Con next week. Yeah, indeed. Oh, that's going to be a long trip. I'm going out there a day early this time. So my, my schedule is just as packed. I'll just have a day to relax ahead of time now. So if you're going to Gen Con as well, and you're listening to this, Gen Con's already been, so you've probably missed Mad. So, right. I'm glad we got that sorted out. That's our Gen Con review done. Woohoo! <laughs> One other thing I suppose we should mention is there's a new Kickstarter just launched. Indeed. Yeah, I've already backed. I'm back at number eight. Yeah, so this is uh, a scenario collection for Call of Cthulhu, uh, put out by Stygian Fox, and it's called The Things We Leave Behind. Mm-hmm. And I understand you've got a scenario in it, Scott. I have, yes. Uh, there's a scenario I did a while back, uh, I've run at a number of conventions, called Hell in Texas. I survived! One of the Dawood <laughs> games I survived! <laughs> you, you may be the only person who's actually played it who survived it. So yeah, because I'm pretty sure I didn't. No. Yeah. Um... And, yeah, it's uh, a fairly unusual scenario. It's, it's set against the uh, evangelical uh, Christian hellhouse uh, sort of movement, or whatever you want to call it, in the US, uh, whereby you know, evangelical churches put on these Halloween-haunted houses with evangelical messages that sometimes use really quite shocking tactics to try to scare people onto the path of righteousness. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I had far too much fun with that. And it's right up to modern day, as, yes. are, as are the other mm-hmm. scenarios, right? Yes. Yeah. What are we talking about this week, then? Secrets and conflicts at the gaming table. Ooh, OK. Uh, and can we talk about this like mature grown-ups? Or are we, are we going to end up... Well, I was about to say, oh. are we going to end up squabbling? But how will anyone be able to tell the difference between that and any normal episode? You don't have appropriate security clearance, clearance citizen. Uh, that's all uh, I'm going to say. You don't get to know. I'm just going to write this note down and pass it to Matt. I don't want you to read it, Scott. Oh, right. OK. But before we get into that, let's have the word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And our Lovecraftian word of the week this week is demoniac. And demoniac means, well, it means a couple of different things depending on whether you're using it as an adjective or a noun. Lovecraft largely used it as an adjective, in which case it means relating to or characteristic of a demon or demons. And if it's a noun, it's a person who is supposedly possessed by an evil spirit. I can think I've had a few of those at the game table. <laughs> Not as a plot device. 
Like Lovecraft, being Lovecraft, used a fairly archaic version of this word. I mean, it's a fairly unusual word anyway, but uh, the spelling he used of it, uh, if you see demoniac used in a modern context, which you're probably fairly unlikely to because it's not a very common word, uh, it is just spelt D-E-M-O-N-I-A-C. But, you know, Lovecraft used uh, the old spelling with the ligature in it, so it's D-A-E. Now, this is a spelling of demon that tends to have other connotations these days. Uh, it comes from Greek mythology, and it tends to mean uh, a fairly neutral nature spirit, or a spirit of intellect, or something like that. Uh, and it doesn't have the connotations of evil that the more you know, Christian use of the word demon has. And Lovecraft wasn't averse to using this, using it 67 times? Yes, using it or variants of it, you know, demoniac, uh, demoniacal, demoniacally. It looks pretty cool with the AE. It does. And, yeah, as I said, he, he largely used it as an adjective, uh, but we did find at least one occurrence of him using it as a noun, which quite surprised me. But we'll get to that in a moment. From the horror at Red Hook. All at once, from an arcaded avenue leading endlessly away, there came the demoniac rattle and wheeze of a blasphemous organ, choking and rumbling out the mockeries of hell in a cracked, sardonic bass. And from the shunned house... I wondered how many of those who had known the legends realised that additional link with the terrible which my wide reading had given me. That ominous item in the annals of morbid horror, which tells of the creature Jacques Roulet of Cord, who in 1598 was condemned to death as a demoniac, but afterwards saved from the stake by the Paris Parliament and shut in a madhouse. And finally, from the Call of Cthulhu. Animal fury and orgiastic license here whipped themselves to demoniac heights by howls and squawking ecstasies that tore and reverberated through those nighted woods like pestilential tempests from the gulfs of hell. What do we mean by conflict at the gaming table? And what is the difference between conflicts between players and conflicts between characters? I've heard the term Brazilian rules used before. If you kill the player, you kill the character. Is that the kind of conflict we're talking about? <laughs> Did that come from that really weird threat in RPG Net donkeys years ago? The uh, the one where people were talking about the worst ever role-playing experiences they had. And there was this GM in Brazil uh, who ran a game in a cafe fairly regularly. And apparently uh, some guys came along and joined his game and he realised fairly early on that they were members of one of the government death squads. And they took the game very, very seriously and started playing it competitively. And one of them drew a gun at one stage. And it, it all sounded rather exciting. I heard it used initially in a live-action circuit where apparently someone was playing a game of vampire or something and they something bad happened to their character, so they decided, ah, yeah, if, you, if you kill the person playing this character, then obviously the problem just goes away. Mm. That's the <laughs> true essence of LARP. <laughs> that's, that's immersion, Dad. It is. <laughs> that is live-action method acting. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about, though, is it? <laughs> Okay. Well, it's, it it's, it's tangent. 
<laughs> it's tangentially related to what we're talking about. It's kind of the extreme end of it. Yeah, yeah. okay. So contrast it to regular uh, traditional play, and I, I by that I'm kind of thinking uh, old school D&D, you sit down and, you know, when I started playing, I think it was a group, and you had a kind of a group objective, and you went in there and largely, I mean, I, this was probably undercut even at the time, but, but largely your agenda was to help each other to achieve a group goal of getting through the dungeon and acquiring stuff and levelling up. And if you acted against that, you were kind of screwing the party. Yeah, there were always, in, in most of the groups I played with, there were always perhaps cosmetic elements of rivalry and, and secrets and backstabbing and so on. But it was very rare for people to actively act against the best interests of the party. Except for there was a character class called Assassin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't recall any D&D game being happy and friendly. What, what the hell is this myth? Yeah, but that, that may just be you, Matt. Well, I think <laughs> it is... Um, it is how some people choose to play it. And I think as we're talking about Call of Cthulhu, um, you know, if we transpose that to Call of Cthulhu, the usual aim of Call of Cthulhu in a lot of traditional kind of Call of Cthulhu scenarios is that you, here's, here's the mission. We're all playing um, characters with a bit of colour to them. But essentially, we're all vehicles to try and get through the, the Call of Cthulhu mission. Yes, you're there to defeat evil, survive, and try to get out with your sanity intact. And then you play one of Scott's games, and that just goes out the window. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> believe in any of these things. I mean, I think a lot of people would say they, they, they don't necessarily follow that, and I think that's all well and good. But I've played a lot of games where, um, you know... Uh, the conflict between the, the characters isn't really an aspect of the game. Yeah, it's definitely a spectrum, though. I remember reading a thread on, it might have been Reddit or it might have been RPGNet, some time back, where there was a group um, who, I think they were playing D&D, and they had a new player join the group, and the player basically made a couple of fairly suboptimal choices during the course of the game uh, in pursuit of his playing his character. He, um, I can't remember what it was, but perhaps you know, didn't quite take an opportunity to take out the bad guy uh, in the most efficient way possible mm. at some stage because you know he, he decided that it wasn't honourable for his character to do or something like that. And whoever it was who was posting on this forum was really ranting about that. And it was the way that they did it that really brought home to me that, you know, that th there are a lot of different expectations out of what you get from gaming. I mean, th this person was talking about how he saw this, you know, the, the, the party that they were playing as being sort of this band of brothers and they were trying to get through this difficult situation mm. together and survive. And this person, by his suboptimal choices, was betraying them. And he couldn't understand this betrayal and he felt hurt by it. Well, I, I would parallel it with playing a, a one of the cooperative board games like Lord of the Rings, the cooperative board game, or even, uh, what's the... the Arkham Horror. The, Arkham Horror, where you're all playing against the game, mm. trying to win against the game. If somebody doesn't pull their weight in that, they're kind of holding the whole group back. Yeah. And I've been in games of that where somebody's more experienced in it and they just basically say, uh, it's your turn, Scott. You should do this and you should put those points there, spend those tokens, do that, do that, do that. 
Right, now it's your, and you haven't really done anything, Scott. Yeah. I've just told you what to do. Now it's your turn, Matt. I'll tell you what to do. It's like, well, why am I sat here playing the game? This guy is just telling me what to do. And it, it, it's kind of that, a role-playing game version of that. You're not really playing a role. You're just, well, you're playing a role in a team, but... But I've certainly seen games of, you know, particularly D&D go like that as well, where you're playing in a very tactical way. And again, you have that one much more experienced player. I mean, it particularly happens, I find, when you've got one or two new players or inexperienced players at the table. And you will quite often get that one person who just sits there and dictates party tactics and sort of say, right, yo, you at this stage do this, this and this. And... Sometimes, you know, I have seen less experienced or quieter players in situations like that reduced to just basically dice rollers. Yeah, I think because, you know, you can play D&D not in that way at all. You can play it, you know, as just for the story and, and everything, but you can play it as a very tactical kind of game. And if you're playing it in that way, then you might have spent a couple of years building up this character that you're playing. You don't really want some new person to come in and screw it up and suddenly, you, you know, your character's dead. You've invested a lot in this character. Yeah. But it becomes quite bizarre when you find... Well, I say bizarre, and this is these are my personal prejudices here, but for me it's quite bizarre when I see the same attitude creep into Call of Cthulhu. I mean, like you say, you know, some people do go into this with this idea of, you know, they are playing a team to try to, you know, overcome the forces of evil and, again, take that seriously. But, you know, for, if, when you take that to an extreme, you know, you seem to end up with something like the Theron Marx Society, which... Yeah, for for me, uh, is the very antithesis of what I want from a call. It's kind of min-maxing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, when I've, I've read through the Theorem Mark Society stuff, I mean, uh, it gave me a wry chuckle from time to time. But dear God, if a group ever played like that at a table, the, you know, a, a game that I was GMing, I'd walk away from it. So what is the difference then? What, what at its heart, what, where's the difference between those two games? Why is, why is it acceptable to... Um, play in a suboptimal way if you know if that's the case in Call of Cthulhu but not in D&D it really depends on your group I think hmm. yeah I, I didn't say it wasn't acceptable I said it wasn't to my tastes and you know for me in in Call of Cthulhu it's because I want something different from the experience I want it to be a horror game I want to feel like the investigators are on the back foot against insurmountable odds um there's this whole feeling for me that if you come up with an optimal strategy, if you're looking at you know the, the shotguns and dynamite route and you know the weaknesses of the monsters you're after, you've done all your research beforehand and so on, then what you're left with at the end isn't a horror game. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a turkey shoot with deep ones. I've also played Call of Cthulhu with people, or rather... What I'm about to say sort of says I haven't played it with them. Um, I've played, I've, I've met people who don't want to play Call of Cthulhu because you just go mad or die. Mm. And that puts them off. They don't want to do that. What's the point of doing, you know, what, what they say is, what's the point of playing a game where, where that's the case? And, and I think that's a perfectly acceptable attitude. I you know it is not for everyone. Mm. But if we've got this game, Call of Cthulhu and, and similar games, wherein you are up against almost insurmountable odds, why do you want other be, to be up against other players as well? Because maybe you can defeat them, but you can't defeat the monster. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's also the whole you know, thing like, you know, you don't have to outrun the Shoggoth, all you have to do is outrun your friends. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, I think that actually happened in one, um, one campaign we played. Um, when we played Beyond the Mountains of Madness, 
that there was a particular scene in which I ended up shooting one of the NPCs in the legs specifically so the thing behind me would oh, get them. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I approve. Yeah. Uh, and those two hand, two hundred pound Nikes that your uh, your character brought really <laughs> as well. But this also goes back to what I said a little earlier about this being a spectrum, because you can have you know as what I called cosmetic conflicts before. So I mean, let's go for a very particular example, Call of Cthulhu example here. One of the first times I played a convention game, and this is going back about ten years to Continuum or Battle Masters, of Call of Cthulhu, where you, Paul, were one of the players, Mike Mason was GMing it, and one of the other players was Kiri Birch, uh, who's a friend of ours, and... Um, you know, uh, Kiri and Paul had role-played together at conventions any number of times before and knew each other quite well. And it was just fascinating seeing this dynamic between them where, you know, there, there was nothing... You know, we created characters, you know, for the scenario at the table. There was nothing in the character background putting us at odds. But almost immediately... Paul and Kiri were bickering with each other like an old married couple. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 there was no serious conflict. Yeah, there were no attempts to kind of steal from other characters or, or hurt them or kill them or anything like that. But it was just the character interactions were antagonistic from the outset. And it was a delight. I mean, it didn't make any difference to our overall survival in the game. Uh, it didn't make the game any less fun for me as a, as another player, but it just added a lot to the energy of the game. Just the you know the two of you kind of uh, arguing away with each other over trivial things all the way through it. Oh, that does ring a bell. Now you say yeah, that, that brings back memories. I think part of the fun of that style of play is well, I guess the key thing is it's fun. You know, it, it's mutually fun. It's not that um, this. this player versus player conflict isn't that you're just maliciously killing another player character or doing something to put them at a disadvantage um you know without them knowing without them sharing in it yeah uh, well, it can be yes i mean it uh, depends entirely on the kind of game you're playing and what the expectations are we'll get to that a bit later in the conversation must admit, I, I quite like, as a GM, running um, a game where I've set up the pregens to have a series of conflicts against each other. Um, partly as, I hesitate to use the term, but mainly as, as a lazy GM. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a way also, it's, on one hand you could think of it as being lazy in the sense that I'm going to make the players do all the, um, do all the work for me. And then it's them that are going to bicker it out between themselves. But also the desire as a GM to be kept on my toes because I don't know how they're going to react and how they're going to act on um, act on this friction between them. Um, case in point, I've run a Delta Green game a few, uh, a few conventions over the years where there's a definite uh, one side of the table versus the other. And that's run quite differently every time I've, play every time I've run it um, to the point where sometimes it's right, one group gets up and leaves the table, goes out into the next room and starts planning what they, um, how they're going to kill the other players. Other characters, even not Brazilian rules, um, <laughs> might get messy at a convention. But yeah, it's also it's a, it is a way to really kind of test and kind of practice your exercise and ingenuity that you are going to roll with whatever they throw at you. But I think it's a great thing because you are preloading the characters that these people are going to play to have some drama and conflict between them. Otherwise, you're giving them. Uh, characters that are all going to work as a party, perhaps, unless you know, unless the players decide otherwise. And the only conflict and drama they're going to have is all 
angled yeah. at you as the keeper, which can be fine, but it's but that's quite one-dimensional. Much more interesting as a keeper, and I think as as from the player's point of view, is if there's you know drama between them and with you. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about horror films you've enjoyed over the years, how many of them are about a you know a functional group of people working together in perfect harmony uh, to overcome an objective? Well, to it's, be honest, not just horror films, Scott. No, no. But I'm thinking particularly of mm. horror in terms of this. But yes, mm. you're right. I mean, you know, heist films or any kind of yeah you know, any kind of team-based thing, uh, you will find almost invariably in films and fiction that there are secrets and lies and agendas and backstabbing going on because that is so much more interesting than everything just going very smoothly according to everyone's plans. There's also thinking of, um, actually thinking of when we mentioned about Gen Con and such, last year at Gen Con when I played uh, Gatsby and the Great Race, the first interaction I had as a, char as a character in that game was walking up to that, uh, walking up to the house, and another one of the player characters turning around saying, "You, you bastard!" I think, "What, what the hell?" <laughs> I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even do, say anything, and the guy launched straight in with, "I hate you for this one, X, Y, Z reason." To, to be fair, that happens to me a lot when I go to conventions too. Yeah, but that's not the game. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the one of the things leading off that that I really liked was that even though we we're at each other's throats for the first part, uh, for the first half of the whole game. Uh, the second half was gradually those two characters that hated each other finally finding having to come together to work and try and solve what the hell was going on. Well, that's cool because you make a relationship even if it starts as a as an antagonistic one. You've kind of made a bond that that can change. Yeah, yeah. There's interaction, and, and that's a great dynamic. I mean, if you think about uh, yeah that happening in fictions and fi film, um, you know, if, the one that springs to mind at the moment from that kind of dynamic is the African Queen. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. where you've got this very antagonistic relationship between you know, Humphrey Bogart's very earthy uh, boat captain, the very prim proper character played by Catherine Hepburn, and you know over time, you know through the ad you know, adversity that they face, they end up bonding and and forming a, a solid friendship. Uh, a bit more but, than that, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but. Um, the, the the point is that you know for the first half of that that film, it's all the more exciting because they are bickering because you know they they're coming at things from very different angles, uh, and it would be a much less interesting film if the two of them just started off as best buds and did everything you know entirely logically and uh, yeah and and optimally. The buddy crime fighting duo. Essentially, if you've got a bunch of you know four or five players, four or five characters in the story, and they're all working smoothly together, doing the same thing without their own agendas. Why are there four or five of them? Mm. Why aren't there just one or maybe two? I guess mm. in D&D, the answer is they'd fill different roles. One's a cleric, one's a fighter, one's a wizard, and Safe, so on. Safety in numbers. At least that kind of works in D&D, but when you take it to uh, other games like Call of Cthulhu, doesn't there, really stand up. There is some element of niche protection in Call of Cthulhu, mm. but it's a bit, uh, a bit more flexible than it is in in say D and D. Yeah, maybe they just want meat shields in case, so I say for them the Shoggoth to get them first. Mm. But one thing I mentioned earlier, which I think we really re need to reiterate, is these conflicts should always be between characters, not between players. And I have been in games where there's been. You know, antagonistic relationships between players, which are spilled over into character actions. And, you know, these are never pretty. And, 
you know, I think we've probably all had the experience at some stage of having, you know, something like that go a bit wrong and trying to resolve it in the game. And dear God, is that going to fuck things up? Mm-hmm. But do you remember that game, um, a Call of Cthulhu game I was running at, I think probably Battlemasters many years ago, Scott, um, and there was one character, it was quite early on, and there was pre, there was some, um, it was kind of preloaded with some character, character uh, you know, action, uh, conflict, and um, one of the players, path, well, one of the characters was almost killed, and somebody at the table passed me a note to say, I'm going to finish them off. And it was like the game was kind of about three quarters of an hour in. <laughs> Yes, Scott, it was you. (laughs) And I was like, I know Scott. I don't know this other player. The game hasn't been going for an hour yet. It's not really the kind of game where I can bring another character in. Um, So if this happens, I'm going to... So I I think I've managed to... Yes, negotiate something. Negotiate something with you that sort of put you off doing that just to... uh, Because when it's a convention game, you kind of feel a a duty to keep people involved. Yes, yeah, yeah, I mean, that that was quite a weird game, if I remember correctly, because the whole thing was set up to be very competitive. Yeah. Um, Yeah, our characters started out at odds with each other. And, yeah, I I sort of fell into the classic sort of thing of, yeah, I'm doing this because it's what my character would do. Which is something I, I was, tend to was, well, it's something I tend to slate other people for, but yes, yeah, it, it, it was fair enough in this situation. But I think that if you're going to preload conflict between uh, characters you know, as a GM and you're you're put, giving out pregens, you have to be kind of wary of that because uh, even if you know your group or you don't know your group, it, it's you know they they can take that to extremes. You don't really know how they're going to play that, uh, and you can end up with character death very very quickly. Mm. Uh, and some games support that in a way that it's just going to uh, be a cost to that to that player's character. And some games, it's just they're dead outright. Yeah, I we're going to talk a little bit later about different types of games that support conflicts between characters and the ways they do it. But I'm going to jump ahead and talk about one in particular, which I think handles this in quite a nice way. Uh, it's a game called The Mountain Witch. And in it, you're playing a bunch of ronin who are going up Mount Fuji to kill the mountain witch you've been hired to do so. But you've all got dark secrets that put you at odds with each other. And these dark secrets may ultimately lead uh, some of the ronin to kill each other. The game has got this idea in it that uh, if your character dies, uh, you still end up being able to influence conflicts from beyond the grave. So even though your character's dead, you are still an active participant as a player in the game. So I think that works out quite well. Uh, As long as you've got... I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with early character deaths in games, as long as you've got a way of mitigating it, whether it's a replacement character, whether it's some way of the player still being involved. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that, that that's fine in that case, but it's not always... It, it depends on the on the scenario and, and the game. I've got a stack of 100 pre-generated bards for after my last one got killed. <laughs> <laughs> but you're quite right pointing out how these things can go a bit wrong at the gaming table. I'm, I can certainly think of a couple of players I've played with um, who seem to have developed something of a thirst for the blood of other player characters uh, who will take any opportunity they can to just gratuitously kill other PCs at the table. 
Actually, that raises the question. I mean, what you're talking about are players who are not doing it in a in a manner that you'd welcome. Yeah. It's, so what do you do about that? Well, I, I think the only thing you can do is, you know, what, what I've had to do before and just talk to the player outside the game and just sort of say, you know, the other players aren't finding this fun. Do you mind changing your behaviour? Tone it down. Yeah. Mm. Because I, that's the point. I, there are, you know, different kinds of games, as we'll go on, you know, to talk about in a moment, where the point of the game is conflict between characters, sometimes, you know, even bloody violent conflict ending in death or betrayal or horror. But, you know, you have to buy into that kind of game. You don't want that sprung on you by one player who is playing that game while everyone else is trying to, you know, either be cooperative or at least just have some light bickering between the characters. And it's just, you know, you get to that stage where there's, you know, perhaps a bit of sharp banter between two characters and it's sort of ha ha ha. And then one of them pulls out a knife and stabs the other one in the throat. And it's, okay, well, we're playing that game then. <laughs> Yeah, you have to buy in. Everyone has to buy into it and sing off the same song sheet from the start. You can't just suddenly have it sprung on you. Yeah, and we'll talk a bit more about how to do that later in the show. But it's not just player character killing, is it? I mean, you know, the, the other classic example, which I know winds people up, is the whole idea of the D&D thief who steals from the rest of the party. Yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> Walked away with my magic item, grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah. And again, you know, in the right kind of game, you know, where everyone's agreed that this is fair play, that's fine. But again, you don't want to have that one player there doing that, you know, and just saying, oh, but it's what my character would do. Yeah, and kind of almost the reverse in some kind of way. I've um, been in a D&D game, which I joined, and it was a seemingly agreed convention by everybody, apart from me, that one of the players would hold one of the player characters would hold all of the money hmm. and then share it out at the end which i don't know that just i didn't really buy into that but everybody else you know it was it was a pre it was a pre-existing group and so i didn't really feel i could contest that i, I did but you don't want to keep doing it cuz yeah. you seem like an ass so yeah it's um, the kind of thing that seems to work as out of character bookkeeping but you yeah, yeah. What kinds of things, as either keepers or players, have we done to foster this kind of thing, this kind of fun conflict at the table? I and mean, we've talked about some of the ways in which it goes wrong. How have we managed to make this fun? Um, besides putting it loaded into the um, character sheets, if you're doing pre-gens, to say, right, you hate X, but you like Y, and then setting up this web of like and dislike across the table. Um, you can give characters secrets or bangs that you might they might not know relate to another um, another character and then have that exposed in the course of play and that immediately causes a problem between two characters that then they will have to try and resolve. It could be they find an amicable solution to it, but it could be loggerheads, you never know. Just yeah, present, present problems and throw, um, throw people under the bus and wait and see what happens. I, and and hope that the players have actually read the bit on their character sheet that tells them about that. Oh yeah, there is a certain reliability. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, it doesn't even have to involve pre-gens, though. I I um, for example, yeah, you know, quite often when we're creating characters as a group for a short campaign, like um, you know, asking lots of questions to the players about the relationship between their characters and sort of try to come up with you know who who do you like, who do you dislike, and why, uh, and try to come up with you know some kind of friction from the outset. 
Um, yeah, and again, yeah, that doesn't necessarily have to lead to murder and death down the line. It can lead to more of an African queen type situation. But yeah, it, and it's not just that it provides that additional bit of drama, but sometimes it helps get the game going in the first place, because you know, you don't always necessarily want to have a game start with you know here is your patron you know he is going to you know, um, you know choose option number three on the mission generator and give you the appropriate token and and you run with that. Uh, you you probably want the characters to start off interacting a bit so that the players can find the voices for the characters and so on. And having a bit of conflict you know perhaps drives that. Well, that's part of what does defines your role. Uh, you're, you're, you're playing a role playing game. Part of your role is, yes, you might have a role in the party, you might be the whatever, you know, you fill a niche within in the group, but also your role is your relationship with the other with the other player characters. You know, you, you're friends with this one, there's enmity with this one, you know, that one betrayed you last year, but you're back working with them. And that is just as much kind of defines who your character is. And without that, you're just, you know, a cipher within the group. And now we'll take a look at games that foster and thrive on conflict. Surely top of the list has got to be Paranoia. Oh, hasn't it just? I mean, this is the classic. I, you tend to think of conflicts between characters as being a very kind of hippie indie game thing, but uh, yeah, Paranoia was doing this back in the mid-80s. And, you know, key in there is that you've got clones. <laughs> so when you get killed off, as you almost inevitably will, you know, by another player character when they find that you're, uh, you know, you're, yeah, you're a traitor comedy, and you're rebelling yeah. against the system or whatever, which everybody's got pre-written into their characters after all. When that's exposed and you're killed, you know, a few minutes later, one of your clones turns up. It's <laughs> fantastic. That's perfect. That is, is, you know, that you, you could play a paranoia version of Master and the Laugh Tape or something like. Send another clone. I, 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 suddenly I, think I, up my I suddenly picked up the diaries of my brother and his brother. And his brother. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, yeah, I've definitely played that game. But Wingate uh, Peasley, <laughs> number four. <laughs> oh, but yeah, Paranoia is great for that. I, I I remember running one game of Paranoia back in the the mid '80s, where there was one character, one player who managed to burn through all six of his clones just in the mission briefing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was thinking, uh, Paul Mark in Master of the Art of the Tep could have done with a clone. Right, I've just been shot by Dart. Spend the next half hour rolling up a character. Mop up the Shoggoth. Dead. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, other games that really uh, thrive on this, as, as Scott, you mentioned, the, the kind of indie game movement. So we've got um, a whole host of games, some of which have a, you know, like, like you, met, you also mentioned Mountain Witch has a loyalty mechanic built into it. So a lot of these games have got, you know, personal agendas. They've got, um, you know, rules for characters interacting with each other specifically for that that kind of um player versus player uh, yeah. kind of action really yeah i mean at the far end of this you've got cold city and hot war where your characters are members of a sort of uh, cross disciplinary team uh in cold city they're all from different countries and in hot war they're all from different political factions or government departments 
and they've been put together into a you know sort of troubleshooting team with an ostensible mission. Now, what I love about both of these games is that mission is almost a pretext. You know, it's the character you dangle in front of the group just to get them moving. But I don't think any sane GM running these games ever expects the mission to be solved. You know, it, it, it's just something that that provides the vehicle to get those conflicts between characters going. And I think when we parallel, if we parallel that with TV shows, often in the first season of a TV show, it's kind of you know if you think about Star Trek, Supernatural, you know Buffy, these kind of shows, the 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 story and the mission in each episode is kind of preeminent. But as the you know you get onto season two and and so on, it becomes more about the interaction between the characters. You know, one of them turns evil. You think about Star Trek episodes, the great ones are when. You know, you get a replacement Kirk, and he's evil, and he's playing against them, or Spock, or whatever, or one of the, you know somebody gets uh, taken over by a monster or something, and you get this fantastic dynamic between the characters. Or, or if you want a TV show that did that from the outset, Firefly. Though, I mean, yeah, everyone in Firefly had their own secrets, and you know, sometimes uh, you had characters like Jane who would just actively work against everyone else and got beaten down for it, and yeah, it was fantastic for that. And one of the games where I've seen conflicts between characters be incredibly satisfactory and entertaining, even though it's not necessarily the focus of the game. I mean, this is a focus, is Dogs in the Vineyard. Hmm. Because, it, I mean, in Dogs in the Vineyard, you're all basically playing... Uh, these almost missionary types, but these tr- religious troubleshooters. Um, wh- one of the best descriptions I've seen is that you're basically playing Judge Dredd as a teenage Mormon virgin. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but shoot the shoot and it's all good. <laughs> yes. But but the point is that you, know, you, as one of God's watchdogs, are entitled to interpret religious scripture or, you know, in game terms, just make shit up, uh, however you see fit. So that means that everyone's personal interpretation, all the different characters' personal interpretation of scriptures, is inherently right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, th- what it brings out to me are people's morals. Yeah. Um, and you're given a moral dilemma and your character has to act on it, you're told basically whatever you as a player decide is correct is right. And, you know, you throw that into the mix and pretty quickly players are disagreeing on what action should be taken over oh, yeah. this, uh, you know, whatever situation it is. I, I remember one of the best games of Dogs in the Vineyard I was ever involved with was about six or eight years ago at uh, Conception. And... Uh, we turned up there early, and I ended up running it just for two players. It was Rich Stokes and James Mullen. And uh, we sat down there, um, uh, got stuck into this um, this fairly simple setup that involved a young woman who committed suicide, and there was some th- there was some suspicion that her spirit wasn't quite at rest. And uh, the two of them had very different ideas as to what should happen to her. They both agreed that some kind of exorcism was was required, but one of them was was you know saying you know we should forgive her for the sin of suicide and you know intercede and try to make sure that she passes on to her eternal reward. And the other is no, she's a sinner. She killed herself. She should be damned for it. And half of the game was just the ongoing arguments and conflicts. I mean, yeah, we went to the dice about this. The two of them actively working to make. Sure Sure, whether the spirit of this girl was damned or you know went off to mm. eternal salvation, and oh dear God, it got brutal. I mean, the, the two of them were just got to the stage where they were willing to kill each other over this. And I think it has to be pointed out, maybe that 
you know, the, the morals they're uh, standing up for aren't necessarily their own morals. Mm. It's the morals of the character they've decided to play. Yeah. Yeah. I must admit, one of my mem- uh, lingering memories from Dogs is uh, talking to a man on a, uh, just sat on a rocking chair on his porch and gradually going up to him, being quite nice and wanting to talk to him, and by the end of it, threatening him at gunpoint to ask me, just because just it escalated again <laughs> and again and again and yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to do a, a show on Dogs in the Vineyard at some stage because, yeah, I think there are enough horror elements in that that we can, we can get away with it. Oh, and, some, so. and some really funky coats. Well, you talked about monster hearts before as well, and yeah, again, there's lots of fantastic conflict that goes on between characters there. So here are your character sheets. Read your background descriptions, but don't share them with anyone. <laughs> if you have if you have a question, please write it down and hand me a note. It's a perfectly acceptable way of doing things, Scott. yeah we'll get to that in a moment but yeah there are certainly you know any number of different ways of starting off the game with with characters with secrets and the biggest one for me initially is yeah sure the characters have secrets from each other do the players so this this largely termed open games or closed games. Yeah, this is something I think I think it, Malcolm Craig coined this phrase uh, for Cold City and Hot War. Uh, this idea of an open game uh, being one where yes, the characters have got secrets, but the players don't. They share all their secrets. And a closed game is one where you you keep your character secrets from uh, the other players until they come into play. Yeah, the first time I heard it was in relation to... I think it was actually Hot War was the first time I heard it, uh, more so than Cold City. Yeah, I I think it's something that went into the game text of Hot War and and wasn't in Cold City initially. Yeah, then went in the second second edition thereof. And it's something sometimes one might put to the player group, you know, do you want to play this with open secrets or secret secrets? You know, play it closed. And some people have got very, very strong preferences. I, we, we mentioned our friend Gaz earlier, admittedly in fairly pejorative terms. Uh, but uh, I, I know, for example, you know, that Gaz has stated a very strong preference when I've run games from conventions that they always be closed games. And I think for one-shots and convention games, that's actually a very good thing. Um, Closed games are very, very easy to do where you've got pre-generated characters. You've got the secrets on the character sheets, the GM or you know, a previous group has come up with them. You hand them out to the players and it's right, you know, there are your secrets. You choose to reveal them how you, you will. Where I think open games have got their strength is in campaigns. Because if you're sitting down and generating characters together and setting up these secrets that are going to spark off each other and drive the conflicts that make the campaign, if you don't know what the other characters' secrets are, then it's, you know, you're kind of... It becomes almost like a game of battleships in that you're you know, having to perhaps guess that you know, that, that someone is you know, uh, you know perhaps is going to have a particular secret which might intersect with yours in such a way, and you may end up be floundering with that later down the line when it turns out that's not the case. And you can only end up doing that so many times before, frankly, it gets fucking boring. And uh, yeah, I certainly know that you know when I've played uh, Cold City with uh, James Mullen before. 
He has really disliked the idea of generating uh, characters in a closed game uh, because you, know, you tend to create, you know, in Cold City and Hot War, agendas which might relate to other characters. Uh, and if those... Um, yeah, let, let, let's say yeah, that you have an agenda that I want to uh, reveal that Paul's character is a Soviet spy or something like that, which is the kind of agenda someone might come up with. Now, so would I know I'm a Soviet spy? No. You know, I mean, uh, it could be setting you up to be one. It, it could be, but you know, it, sometimes it then you know, sort of forces a few preconceptions on what that character is or you know, perhaps leads to a particular you know, resolution that the other player really doesn't like. Whereas you know, if you sit down and talk about these things and set up conflicts that both sides will enjoy as part of that creation process, then you know, I, I tend to find it goes a bit more smoothly in a campaign. But the mechanics in that also kind of demand that, don't they? Because if you set an agenda in a game such as Cold City, such as you just, you just said, if you win the uh, requisite number of conflicts, dice rolls in the game, you get to realise your agenda. So yeah. if, if you've stated that you're going to expose me as a spy without any say-so from me, yeah. you can force the issue. And, you know, if it was a closed game, I wouldn't even know I was a spy, but suddenly you're saying I am. Or, or even if you're being framed, it's certainly you know, perhaps introducing an event that is going to spell the end for your character if yeah. it gets resolved, okay. that you're not getting a say in, that, yeah. you know, I, I am going to you know spend my actions secretly trying to set you up to be exposed. Okay, that's a, a different thing, yeah. But, but, you know, that may be a different thing, but... Yeah. You know, still, you know, if at the end of it it comes out with this resolution and you're sitting there going, Bob, you know, I, I, I don't really want this. This isn't fun for me. Hmm. Um, you know, you could have avoided that by discussing it at the start of the game. And if it, you know, th that's where it's different in a campaign. Because in a campaign you've got a lot more investment, you're playing these things out over a longer term. So it's not just like the short, sharp shock of a you know, three-hour convention game where you know, perhaps if something like that happens and your character is destroyed by that revelation at the end, well, that might be quite a good you know, f capstone to that convention game. If it happens two sessions into an eight-session convention game and your character is completely fucked, you, know, you, you might be quite pissed off about that. <laughs> mm. There's no might about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've played a open campaign game that I can think of. I mean, I guess I guess these things, um, I mean, if you've not played, uh, you know, explicitly open or closed games and you've just played, you know, you just played your game and, you know, secrets crop up in it, uh, it's likely you have had a, a mixture of both. It's likely that, you know, somebody's said something at the table and you've kind of taken it, oh, yeah, well, actually, yeah, my character wouldn't know that, but, yeah. you know, I'm gonna, we're going to kind of uh, incorporate some aspect of that into the, into, the, uh, into the game anyway. That actually raises an interesting point, which is this whole thing about secrets coming up at the table. Um, now, personally, when I'm running games like this, yeah, but some time ago, I used to be quite happy with you know, passing notes around at the table or if there was you know, a character who wanted to do something in secret, I'd go off to one side with the player. Oh, you've changed. Yeah, I, I, I don't anymore. Um, particularly not the latter. I mean, you know, occasionally people will pass me notes and you know, I'm not enough of a dick just to read them out to everyone at the table. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I never pass notes to other player characters if I'm GMing. Um, but... 
if someone you know is going off to do something secret or on the side, yeah, I will now just do that at the gaming table in front of everyone else and just trust that everyone else is mature enough to you know separate out the knowledge of that uh, from what's happening. Uh, and yeah, I mean sometimes it means that you know big secrets will get spilt, but I think that's still a fairly dramatic thing to happen. You know, even if your characters aren't directly involved in it. And and more to the point, I don't like the way it kind of slows down the action. I you know, particularly if you've got one player who's doing a lot of that and they're dragging you away from the table the whole time. I think it has to be I think you have to be careful with that. I mean I'm a big fan of taking characters to one side and talking to them, passing notes and so on. But I think you do if you're gonna take someone out, you take them out, you keep it to a, a brief amount of time. Um, and you bring them back as soon as you can. Um, yeah, you, you definitely don't want to be taking them out for you know fifteen minutes, and then you come back and everybody's talking about something totally different. Yeah. It is quite gratifying when you come back in and they're still talking in character and they plotted their own thing that you <laughs> yes. don't know about. That, that is great. nice. What you mean, like going to use a dark young to intimidate someone? Yeah, I do mean that. <laughs> that was one example. But but you can, you can you can have a sort of compromise where you talk an open code to the other player at the table, where it's sort of oh, oh yeah, yeah you know that you know you know that, that thing. person you go and see them about the thing yeah. yeah yeah that's still kind of implicit isn't it it's, yeah. I normally, when I think of the note example, um, I try to respond to the note vocal um, in the open. Yeah. So someone will pass me a note and I'll say, no, you can only get six. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> was it sticks of dynamite? Oh, Maybe, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Or at least reply to it where no one has any idea about the context. Oh, that's, I just like that, saying yes that or just no. kind of adds to the, the intrigue, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. why. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've obviously all used secrets and you know conflicts between characters and so on a lot in our games what what kinds of examples can you think of um you know what what kind of secrets do you set up you've got a shan in your head don't tell anyone that's a classic in call of cthulhu yeah if you run call of cthulhu it's likely that uh you have characters get killed off you know not that irregularly shock and you know when you give the player a new character, and the, the you know your investigator group are a t tight knit lot who are very secretive. They don't want everybody to know about their agenda and what they're doing. And yet this new character comes in, and you know I give Matt this new character. He walks up to them and says, "Hello, guys. Uh, I'm I'm here to see you about the you know the finishing off the cult." And they all go, "Oh yes, hi. Come. This is." our information download to you <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that you fit immediately into the group. We don't have to interrogate you about who you are or anything like that. Yes, here's our master plan. Here's where we're going with it. Here's our vulnerabilities. Yeah. Because obviously, you're okay. You're a player character. You're of a player character. So here's what you do. You just give them a mole from the cult and let them roll on that. Um, so yeah, I, in, in uh, was it? Was Walk it Walking the, waste. the Wastes? Yeah. Um, I... One of one of the player characters got killed, and you know he was thinking about the player was thinking about who to what what kind of character to play next. And I can't remember if it was Dave's suggestion or mine now, but um, we ended up between him and me just coming up with the idea that he was playing someone from the cult that infiltrated the player character group, and he kept that secret for a few weeks, kind of finding out about what's going. But he was immediately accepted by all the players. 
Um, without question. That did not happen after that point, I hasten to add. <laughs> <laughs> a, few, a few sessions later, I think he was drugging everybody's tea. Yeah, he, he deliberately, he became like the party cook, as it were. And then one morning, yeah, everyone give me constitution rolls. Bastard. <laughs> but you I weren't was, all killed off by him. I mean. No, I'm glad I shot him in the face because I was the only one who survived the con roll. <laughs> <laughs> he was set up as a somewhat inept character. He wasn't like really, really good at this stuff. So the idea was that, you know... Make him even less suspicious. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that was fun. Because obviously cultists aren't... Uh, cultists are all capable and they're all assassins and they're all woogie-woogie and evil and... Uh, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still bravo, though. It was, a, it was a good move. Yeah, I've used a sort of variant on that a couple of times in convention games. But... Uh, sort of had the character have this sort of secret identity, but sometimes kept it secret from the player of the character as well. And, you know, sort of presented them a character sheet with perhaps holes in their memory or stuff like this. Or, you know, perhaps a variant of what you were saying about the Shan in the head, but, but, but no, something a bit, you know, stranger than that. Where, you know, the, the character believes they are one thing and they are, in fact, something completely different that, you know, it has just been fooled into thinking they're a person or this person or something like that. And is going along acting in good faith. You know, there perhaps may be a few things on the character sheet that say, you know, you, 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 know, you behave a bit oddly in these situations. So maybe they don't realise that they died a week ago or something yeah, so, like that. Yeah, that or kind of thing. Is that, yes. I'm trying to think yes, of a, or, an or, illustration. Or, or, or that they're a demon taking the form of this person who has convinced themselves that they are this person until, you know, uh, certain events come up that that make them realise what they are again. Or you go all Blade Runner and yes, you are a replicant. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there are ways in the game that they might find this out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that did actually happen, thinking of it, that did actually happen to me in one game. Uh, it was a sci-fi Cthulhu setting in which I suddenly realised, yes, actually, I am a replicant. Oh, okay, my programme just broke. <laughs> Oops. Suddenly <laughs> <laughs> became very interesting ways to hide certain items on your person. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't elaborate on that. <laughs> well, hang on, just one question first of all. Was this in character or out of character? Yes. <laughs> now we'll look at ways that you can set expectations and ground rules. This is my way or the highway! <laughs> As we said earlier, most of the problems with having conflicts between characters come from the fact that the players at the table don't have the same expectations. That, you know, you get three people going in uh, expecting to play a very cooperative game and, you know, one person is sitting there playing paranoia. Yeah, chances are, if, you, if you're if you a regular group and you've been meeting up every week for a few years, you probably know the kind of game that you've already come to a consensus. It's when you join a new group or it's a convention game, you don't know other people or, you know, obviously you get new people joining your group. Yeah, they they different people play role playing games quite differently um and have quite a different approach to how they you know how they not just individual games but just their standard way of role playing i think can be quite different and uh when you sit down with somebody like that it can be a bit of a shock mm. if you find yourself in the situation though that you know perhaps Everyone else is you know, behaving a bit more antagonistically than you'd like, or alternatively, you know, if you if you want to play you know, a bit more of a feisty character, and and you're finding that everyone else is disliking this because they want to be you know, a well optimized group, the 
the only solution to it really is communication. You know, this is just so blindingly obvious that it shocks me that it comes up over and over again uh, as a question on various RPG forums. You know, I'm having this particular problem with someone not acting the way I'd like in the group. You know, how do I fix it? And then people are looking for ways of fixing it within the game. And it's not. You, you step back from the game. You remember that your people sitting around the table at, you know, together. Trying and you to talk happen. about it. Yeah. yeah. And you talk yeah, about it's it. a layer of the interaction and the game that people don't really consider is you know differentiate is it's his own thing yeah i think people can get probably too immersive that's partly the problem that they see the game and not that suddenly they forget it is a game you can't yeah they don't want to sort of step out of it yeah. and actually interact in any other way <laughs> and that yeah. would kind of and it would be like i don't know um it would be like stopping the tv show ringing up the, the studio and saying, no, no, you can't have this kind of action going on, putting the phone down and waiting for next week when they, you know, re-script the show or something. Um, <laughs> they did they work with heroes, most of the... Most of the most of <laughs> or the, did it? <laughs> well, most of the viewing audience hated it so much they left and then at that point they fired the writing staff in season three. Well, yeah, there, there was... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I know myself, I have... If, if I've um, prepared a game in which... It's got pre-gens and they, you know, I've designed them to have friction with each other. I'm thinking particularly of um, a game I wrote, Dockside Dogs, which is kind of based on Reservoir Dogs. You know, it is, you know, you are playing characters akin to those in, in Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, obviously I intend there to be friction between them. But sometimes people kind of want to hold back from that because they think, oh, it's Call of Cthulhu, we need to play as a group. So I do say to people, you know, at the start that this 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 game expects player versus player conflict. You know, don't feel compelled to hold back. Um, you know, you play it as you want to play it. If you want to put a gun in somebody's face, then then go ahead. Um, and that, you know, I've kind of written that into the into the scenario to sort of deal with that. Um, but I think it's it's worth saying to people if if you want that kind of game. Particularly as GM, I mean, traditionally, the players look to the GM for instruction. Yeah, it's very different with convention games because you know if you're playing a, a campaign where everyone's creating their own characters, you have that whole character creation bit where people are talking to each other. You're discussing what's suitable for the campaign, and you're you're, you're perhaps explicitly, perhaps implicitly setting the tone and expectations there. But with a convention game, you know you're throwing people in at the deep end, and you know this is certainly something I've come to doing as well. Um, you're not just for that, but but quite often just explaining what kind of game this is to the players. So, for example, you know, if I'm running Pop Cthulhu, for example, you know, I, I will just sort of say this is not standard Call of Cthulhu. Your characters are not delicate little things. You know, you, th this is not a slow burn investigation. You know, don't be afraid to jump in there and get your characters into danger. Yeah, like, you know, that that's that's where the fun in this game lies. Like, don't be afraid to go and punch the Arthur Tep in the face if you really, if you come across it. Exactly. <laughs> Who would be? <laughs> but that's that's part of it, actually. I think is the the fragility of your your character, who is your pawn in the game. Really, if if, if that character is wiped out, often it's like you know you're out of the game, yeah. or you're out of the game for a while at least. So you know you're a bit. It's it's understandable that characters are a bit players are a bit precious about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Especially in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. There is a tool online which will help an awful lot with this. 
Uh, it's something that I think Neil Smith at uh, Milton Keynes uh, Role Playing Club uh, introduced to us that he'd he'd found online. It's developed by a chap in the US called Chris Chin, uh, and it's called the Same Page Tool. If I'm clever, I'll remember to put a link to it in the show notes. It's just basically a series of, of multiple choice questions that you either, if you're setting up a campaign with a group, that you ask of the players and just you know make sure you, you, you get people to state preferences. So it's things like, you know, um, are you playing this game to win? You know, is character survival uh, an important thing to you? Is this about the acquisition of money, the exploration of ideas? Years or whatever, uh, and you know, one of the big questions in there is whether or not player characters are expected to work together. Um, you know, with uh, whether there's just cosmetic conflicts or whether there's real conflicts. Whether you're uh, expected to work against each other, and alliances are temporary at best. Yeah, I mean, these are some quite fundamental things. Which, when you read through, when well, when I read through some of them, I think, oh no, that's not a part of my game. You know, I'm almost surprised that people would play that. Yeah. Because I just think, oh, that doesn't gel for me. So it's, it's an interesting list, I think. To, even if you're not going to use it, it's an interesting list to read through and think how it bears on your game. So I'd very much encourage people to have a look at that. Yeah, and one thing we've started doing at the Milton Keynes Club as well is we post uh, sort of pictures for our games online, you know, for, for the campaigns, online sometime before we actually get round to pitching them at the club and getting players to sign up. So you can read the pictures ahead of time. And what a lot of GMs do is they actually go through the same page tool and, and fill in the appropriate responses. So that's their expectation of what they're going to the table with, so the players know what kind of game they're signing up for. You, know, you, you can probably guess the style of game if you're signing up to a Call of Cthulhu game. But you know, if the GM says something about it being you know, a very you know, player-versus-player-type game, this may not be your expectation from a Call of Cthulhu game. And so it's good having that knowledge up front. I think you can probably... you know, If you know the GM and you know the game system they're running, you probably kind of circumvent that. You kind of know what you're expecting. Well, you say that, but, I mean, you talk about Dockside Dogs, for example. When, you know, if you're running a Call of Cthulhu game, it may be, you know, a fairly cooperative affair. You may be largely working together. Then you get a bunch of people playing Dockside Dogs. They've played Call of Cthulhu with you before. They're not expecting that degree of conflict between the characters, and it might take some of them by surprise. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking as a generalisation, that's probably the case. But this, this tool kind of allows you to really focus in on those things, communicate it pretty quickly. There is a device that was, I think it was originally started in the Camarilla Society and was picked up by the likes of Isles of Darkness and other live action groups that I've played with, where they have what they call a venue style sheet, or VSS, which they have different categories that says like drama, um, death and corruption, pace, and they'll rate these things between one and five so that it shows you how frequently they'll turn up in a game. So that when you go to, let's say, a game in Reading, that is going to be very different to a game in, let's say, Cambridge. So that you have, because you have different GMs running the games, that you can then see ahead of time, well, is this going to be worthwhile me travelling halfway mm. across the country to go to a game if I'm not going to like it from the, uh, from the tone that it's advertised from the start? That's a really good idea. So does it suit my tastes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I think we've had enough of being nice to each other. Let's let's you know, shut the microphone off now. And I totally disagree, that. Scott. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'll get the brass knuckles. <laughs> I think we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> yep. So bring some conflict to your tables in a you know in a loving way. A baseball bat with your name carved on it. <laughs> Scott just nodding away there. Yep, nodding for the microphone. <laughs> and uh, let us know how, you know, I'm sure everybody has done this, probably, you know, as long as they've been playing role-playing games, there's been conflict at the table. But it's interesting to hear about other people's experiences of it, how they fostered it, how they worked against it, you know, how it's worked for them. Yep. So let us know. Yes, yes, in pleasant terms, please. Whatever terms you like. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what, who the hell are you and what have you done with Scott? <laughs> That's all for now, so it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.